the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast from Lloyd's List Intelligence, delivering you expert analysis on the stories shaping shipping. To find out more about our actionable maritime insight, data, and analytics, visit lloydslistintelligence.com. Shipping's decarbonisation dialogue is starting to sound a little bit schizophrenic. For the first half of the year, all we heard was that the IMO was not going far or fast enough, and everybody was lobbying for a 1.5 degree alignment in terms of the 2050 targets, with some stringent 2030 and 2040 waypoints in terms of our decarbonisation trajectory. Well, we didn't get there, but we weren't far off. So was that enough to catalyse the final investment decisions needed to get green fuel supplies off the ground? Well, the short answer is no, it wasn't. And as for the industry's efforts to accelerate efficiencies in the short term, well, it seems nobody is convinced that those 2030 targets that everybody was pushing for are in any way achievable now. It was just too much, too soon, and we're never going to make it. Now, I am fully aware that I am conflating and misrepresenting some pretty nuanced debates here, but the point is that not everybody is pointing in the same direction right now. Now that we can't blame the IMO for our collective inertia, how do we justify the fact that green shipping is just not very green? I'm going to jump around a bit in today's edition and tackle a few related issues of green fuel supply, not least the current topic du jour of methanol as Maersk's marketing machine cranks into action for the launch of the genuinely groundbreaking Laura Maersk. And of course, we need to talk about the difference between what Maersk says and does versus the difficult realities for the rest of shipping's fragmented middle. They are not the same thing. But let's start with a necessary bit of context by revisiting those IMO decisions from MEPC 80, because I get the distinct impression that the shipping industry has been thinking about this on the beach over the summer and may well be misremembering what actually happened. The IMO's revised strategy, adopted at MEPC 80, represents a major leap forward in ambition. It has brought the sector's required transition from fossil fuels to scalable, sustainable, renewable fuels into the decade of the 2030s. Even at the lowest ambition interpretation of that strategy, the average ship's greenhouse gas intensity will need to have been reduced by 86% by 2040. The era for any interim or transitional steps, and by the way, that includes many biofuels, blue fuels, onboard carbon capture storage, or other fossil fuels like LNG and LPG, anything like that that is not directly on the pathway to what the sector will need to look like in 2040 has been squeezed down to a handful of years, further undermining the likelihood of any viable business case. In short, things have been dramatically accelerated by what was agreed this summer. So, why are people still feeling that we don't have sufficiently clear regulatory pathways ahead of us to move? Here's Jan Dieleman, president of Cargill Ocean Transportation, to kick us off this week. Yeah, no, I think the skepticism will always be there with, with people. I, I, I think everybody agrees on the, on the direction of travel, but I think what is a little bit out at the moment is, is the pace of this change. Mm. Are we going to see some of these regulations in the next three to five years? Is it five to ten years? And I think that's where the industry is, is struggling a little bit. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I can also understand that because you also don't want to start investing too early in some of these technologies and, and not somehow getting the back of your regulations. So I think there is a little bit of watching each other who's doing what. I do think if you look at the order book, for instance, and, and some other indicators, 
uh, we are actually transiting. Mm. It, it is not anymore an intention, and yeah. and and you can always wonder if should we be going faster. And you know that I'm pretty impatient in that sense, and I'm always willing to go faster. But you also need to be realistic. And if you look at the numbers, we are getting dual fuel zero carbon ships on the water and actually we're having them on the water today and i think that's a big milestone already and i think it's going to be uh, choppy we're going to have some uh, some some step backs uh, setbacks here and there i think and we're going to get some some things where we're going to get excited about i think it's important that we have the private sector and the public sector now really going into the same direction and i think that's a huge win We'll come back to the order book and specifically the methanol issue in a moment. But I just want to tackle the issue of fuel supply first, because the issue of how the IMO agreement is being interpreted is actually pretty key to this argument. The big question was always going to be whether the long-term ambitions being set by the IMO would be enough to catalyze green fuel supply projects. And I'm getting mixed messages on that right now. I've spoken to a number of the big traders some with their own green fuel projects under development. And the message that I'm getting there is, no, it was not enough. There was no carbon price, they say, and yes, I'm aware that that was never on the table for MEPC 80. And there is no hope that the use of carbon and fossil fuels is going to be penalized imminently, they argue. It just hasn't come out strong enough that that's going to happen by 2025, in their view. And this isn't just an opinion from the few people that I've been speaking to. Projects are actually being pushed back right now. Canadian fertilizer major Nutrien announced last month that it had suspended work on its proposed clean ammonia project in Louisiana. They were blaming an increase in capital cost as the primary factor. And for those of you who know about this sort of thing, this was the 1.2 million ton clean ammonia project that was one of the most advanced. And it was happening inside the US where the Inflation Reduction Act ensures that it is getting the best possible tax advantages that it could possibly hope for in a generation. And yet, that's not enough. They're blaming an increased expected capital cost compared to the initial estimates. Also, they are saying that it is partly down to continued uncertainty on the timing of emerging uses for clean ammonia. Or in other words, inflation has made it too expensive and the demand signals from industry has not been enough to allow those final investment decisions that we hear so often. Now, that is worrying, but it's also not the whole story. Uh, here's Tristan Smith from the environmental consultancy UMass. So, so one of the things which I'm observing as a tension is that a lot of the fuel producers are complaining about the lack of a long-term offtake agreement, which is what they need, which strikes me as extremely naive given, given that shipping has never put in 10 years worth of futures purchase of a fuel. Um, and so what we're really missing is this player or innovative solution that sits in the middle between the, the producers and the off-takers, off the ship owners, um, that says, like, we're going to secure a bundle that guarantees demand. And I think the, the thing that's really interesting is that the the producers, some of the producers are seeing the strength of the IMO's commitment, let's say the five striving for 10% in 2030, which is of the order of 30 million tonnes of ammonia committed for use in the shipping industry if we if we take that interpretation of it. And saying, well, that's enough that I can be confident to put one or two or three million tons of production forwards now. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put thirty million tons of production just in case we don't hit that five percent, or just in case it's not ammonia, it's also methanol. Um, but I can at least put a D 
decent lump of investment in there and be ready to scale it fast whilst I keep an eye on the developments over the next two years. So there's there's kind of a portion who can take the signal from that, even if they can't get the 10-year offtake agreement that they would really like in order to line everything up in the zero-risk way. And I think that's handling that risk of exactly who's going to be the longer-term buyer and managing the uncertainty of it is what will separate those who can move fast and get market penetration early um, from those who are going to wait until they've got a 10-year deal. So look, there are, of course, worrying macroeconomic headwinds here to consider, but you currently have governments vying to support green fuels and technology. And let's be clear here, there is more than a sneaking suspicion that much of this could yet be considered hardball negotiation tactics in terms of pricing on fuels. Nobody's denying this needs to happen. This is just a question of at what price. Exactly. So no one is going to, no government or group of governments, as in the multilateral process, or customer is going to fully remove any risk, any risk in a fuel production investment. And so um, you have to be able to manage without that and not expect to state that as your demand or precondition, which is unfortunately what is still happening. Maritime decarbonisation targets are becoming more ambitious, and the journey ahead is both complex and full of uncertainties. DMV's latest Maritime Forecaster 2050 report investigates all decarbonisation options to help shipping plot the right course. This is the decisive decade for shipping. Actions taken now will shape our future for generations. Download the report at dnv.com and join us on this journey. Okay, so back to the IMO. As punchy as the newly revised targets there are, there is still a concern that until we get solid legislation, until we see the detail of what the new fuel standards will be, until we get into the nitty-gritty of what a carbon levy looks like, we're still dealing with aspirations rather than actionable timelines. Here's Eva O'Leary from the environmental NGO Opportunity Green. I think the IMO's new strategy is, as you say, much better than I think any of us really expected, um, to be honest. Uh, and then I will say this because it's a written quote that you could find on the internet of mine, but I was skeptical as to whether we get any 2030 or 2040 targets at all. So, you know, I am quite impressed at where we ended up. However, obviously, it will surprise no one as an environmental NGO. Um, I also think it's not enough. Um, and we've got to be in line with 1.5. That's absolutely crucial. And we're not there yet. Um, but yeah, it is a vast improvement. And I think it is really interesting to me as well, speaking to the industry, especially after the um, new strategy, and they're really focused on the 2050 target more so than the 2030 and 2040, um, which is, yeah, to me, I I would have thought that kind of closer targets are much more front of mind. But I think a lot of that actually reflects the fact that they are just targets and there's really no implementation yet. And as you point out, we need to know what that is going to be. And we need to know pretty quickly on the IMO's timeline. Unfortunately, we're not going to get that implemented until 2027 at the earliest. And if that's to achieve a 2030 target, um, you can pretty quickly imagine how steep uh, that downward trajectory has to be. So that really leaves a big gap for national governments, to be honest. And the EU has already come forward with its fuel EU maritime and the emissions trading system. I think we're just going to see that tightening uh, over time. And I think we'll see other uh, national governments moving forward as well. But I think the industry itself is very clear now on what the trajectory is. 
But ultimately, until there is legislation in place, these deals are incredibly expensive. And for even the you know giant players like Maersk, who have some really, really great goals, you know, their CEO came out recently and said, oh, well, you know, we can't actually guarantee that we're going to meet our alternative fuel target because we don't know that there's going to be enough fuel. And the only way that that fuel is going to be in place is if we have the legislation to ensure it will be. And that, I guess, comes back to what we have just released in terms of our new report is looking at that gap in legislation for green hydrogen and hydrogen drive fuels. And so that takes us back to the fuel supply gap. This week, we've been bombarded by class society figures. ABS told us that the net zero goal will require a combination of 70% zero carbon fuels, which requires 10 times more renewable energy than is currently being produced, and 30% carbon neutral fuels, which requires more carbon capture than actually exists today. DNV, meanwhile, told us that to meet the IMO's interim 2030 goal of a 20% greenhouse gas emissions reduction, shipping would need as much as 40% of all global alternative fuel production. In terms of the order book, the industry is clearly expecting the fuels, but not yet. There's no true fuel transition in motion yet. And if we can't get projects catalyzed in the US right now, what hope for the rest of Europe's poultry tax incentives? Back to Jan Dieleman from Cargill. I think in, in, in the US things are moving faster. If you, yeah, yes, not every product that gets announced gets built, but there is clearly movement. And I think what you're seeing today is, is also the geopolitical influence, right? Because mm. it's all coming from geopolitical corner that this is happening. So with that, you have a lot of people bit skeptic on what's going to happen when the subsidies run out right Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people are looking at europe and is europe going to somehow trying to double down and 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 trump what is happening on the other side um so i think there's a lot of moving pieces and and i think for us something that we will get to i think is the question is where's the fuel production and where's the fuel demand going to be and 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 how is that all going to pencil out and i think there's there's some questions there but I don't think you can deny that there's a huge amount of money and subsidies going into this transition, which eventually will speed it up. I mean, you mentioned the order book and the fact, you know, we clearly are in transition. One of the biggest growth areas recently, of course, has been methanol. And, you know, we are talking in the month that uh, Maersk are going to launch the first of their methanol uh, fueled uh, feeder ships. It feels like a, a pretty significant step. But of course, methanol is not the end goal. It is it's not that green when it comes down to it. Uh, Maersk have gone above and beyond and effectively created their own supply chain in order to launch these things. But I think Maersk will be the first to agree that it was never what they wanted. It was what they could do at the time. And I wonder, do you have any concerns about the rate at which people have then followed and whether they are going to be quite so um, um, assiduous about you know where they are sourcing their fuels and how green that fuel will genuinely be? Yeah, I think it's the same for us, right? We, we ordered those five and, and we, we don't have all the answers on how this is going to pencil out. Uh, what does green mean, right, in, in methanol? And then you have all the colors in between and, and I'm sure people come up with some different colors going forward that we haven't even heard of. Um, I, I do think we need to be careful not to trying to go into, trying to predict exactly what's going to happen. I think what you're seeing here is an industry, at least a part of the industry, is trying to set itself up to have the option to burn some of these zero carbon fuels. And I think that's a huge step forward. And they are dual fuels in the end of the day, right? So 
even there, it could well be that part of that order book is going to run on biofuels initially. Uh, when the supply gets sorted out, you could even see uh, drop in. Uh, green in the methanol, so you have an awful lot of, of of ways of doing that, and and I think even ourselves, we're on the journey, right? We're on the journey, not only on the side of the of the producing part of the supply chain on are these fuels available, what is the costing of this, but also very much on on the customer side, and mm. trying to understand what they define as as being green or what is the minimum that they would like to see and do they want to go 100% as of day one or is there a pathway that you're going to blend yourself in over time and I think there's an awful lot of questions still outstanding but I think the good thing is that we're actually having physical options on the water soon that can actually burn some of these fuels. I can't talk about methanol this week without talking about Maersk which of course is as we record this edition launching the first of its methanol powered ships and announcing its own methanol production firm called C2X in order to increase their output of clean methanol. Maersk of course and I'm saying this on the record should be commended for taking responsibility as one of the leading shipping companies in the world to invest its own cash in new technologies and the decarbonization of its fleet. I think it's doing very good work in that respect. Our industry needs more pioneers like Merce to put their money where their mouth is. But let's be clear here, methanol is not green. When you burn methanol, you emit CO2. That's just basic chemistry. Some of the methanol on board the maiden voyage of Merce container ship has been produced by using methane, that's CH4 for the chemists among you. That was captured from decomposing organic waste at landfills. Unburnt methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, and one of the main reasons that LNG as a shipping fuel is sometimes considered to be a bad idea in terms of the well-to-weight methane slip. But that aside, burning this biogas or or transforming it to uh, biomethanol and then burning it instead of letting it escape into the atmosphere has a lower greenhouse gas impact on the planet. That's good news, surely? Well, yes, but... There is never going to be enough of this landfill biogas to fuel even a very small part of the shipping industry, not least other hard-to-abate industries like aviation, who are also going to be competing for it as well. I'm going to go into more depth on methanol and the questions surrounding it in later podcasts, but I think it's important to raise this now, because while what Mersky is doing is laudable, around 8% of the order book is now dual-fuel methanol. And my concern is that not everybody is going to be quite so diligent in its fuel sourcing strategies as Maersk. Either we see a generation of dual-fuel methanol ships never seeing a molecule of green methanol in their tanks, or they run on grey methanol. Either way, it's not a great advance for the environment. Maersk is not to blame, by the way. But, as I've pointed out on more than one podcast, not all shipping is Maersk. Here's Tristan again. Yes, I mean, I guess it has been oversold because it hasn't been properly discussed with a transparent um, with tran- transparency of its shortcomings and scalability, and that's and that's of course that's what you're going to do if you're if you're a methanol player, i.e., if you're ordering fleet which has got methanol capability, you don't want to not send a very strong signal to the fuel producers that you're serious about being a long-term buyer of methanol by saying you know we're going to do this for a couple of years and then we're going to buy ammonia ships, which is which is what I think Mesk should have said more publicly. And they will say it if you ask them privately. So they'll say, once we get ammonia sorted, then of course we'll start buying those if that looks, if that, if that adds up. Um, but they don't say it very, they don't say in their publicly, um, stated position, they're much more, you know, this is it. We're going for it. This is the solution at zero emissions, which, which is really, I mean, and, and they've been very clever at rebranding 
methanol as green methanol, regardless of its origins. So you have so if green is kind of the holy grail of the renewable electricity produced zero emission fuel, you have two things which are being rebadged in order to sound like they're that when they're either produced from fossil fuel with CCS, the blue fuels, or biogenic feedstocks, neither of which are what we originally used to call green fuels two or three years ago when the first term was first around. I mean, I think any of the colouring has proved to, I mean, partly because it's been abused in that way, and the colouring has proved that it's not what we should be using. We should just be using quantifications of the well-to-weight reductions. And it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about biogenic feedstocks or something else, because the the realities of the upstream emissions associated with the biogenic feedstock get properly accounted. Um, so I think I think that will evolve. Um, I hope it will evolve. But in the marketing space, it's very hard to say, here's an 83% well-to-weight greenhouse gas reduction. You just want to say, the ship is green or the ship is zero. But it's neither of those two things normally. And that point I made about what the rest of the Maersk followers are doing to source their fuel supplies is not just me stirring the pot, by the way. The question of where shipping sources green methanol is key. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, that's where, where Maersk lead. Others jump on the bandwagon and find a cheaper and dodgier way to do it. So, um, and, and I, you know, having spoken to some of their competitors, and I've had very worrying conversations where they go, yeah, you went to China and asked them whether they had enough biomethanol they said yes right and the guy goes yeah yeah they said that that's the that's their kind of due diligence on the fuel availability that doesn't that doesn't instill confidence either in the volume availability or in the credentials of the availability and i think a lot of people haven't read the alca guidelines that are coming out at the imo and realize that not all of these feedstocks are going to be treated equally um so they're still in the space. And I think that's we're in this really interesting period of three or four years where we won't have midterm measures um, entering into force. So everything is done off, um, off, off essentially industry leadership. And therefore, it's all about the comms and the branding. So we've got three or four years where people can get away with that because unless those industry initiatives really dial down on the specifics, um, then people are going to be wanting to say, oh, it's very important that we get some stakeholders who are doing something that we can call green. So let's bring them in, even though we know they're a bit dodgy. Um, I think that, and I think watching those kind of early movers um, as they make announcements, whether it's a green corridor announcement or a, or another type of club, um, Zemba is going to be really interesting to watch the COZEV spin out, which is a club of the cargo owners who want to, want to stimulate zero emission fuel use. Um, and they're coming up with some, definitions and specifications would be interesting to watch that to see whether or not that's going to set a precedent for how to define something which isn't going to be greenwash or biogenically damaging um, competition wise yet again i find myself in the weeds and out of time clearly i've only just scratched the surface of this debate and there's plenty more to come i promise but for today i am going to have to leave it there I will be back tomorrow for the final of these daily podcasts running during London International Shipping Week, and I'm going to be bringing along the rest of the Lloyd's List team who have been making a nuisance of themselves around the events this week. So we'll find out what they've made of it all. Anyway, today... But for today, thank you again for DNV's support in helping us getting this podcast out to you this week. Uh, And thank you all for listening. I was worried that this was going to be a bit too much, but uh, we're over 10,000 listens in so far this week. 
suggest that uh, there is at least some demand for this. So please do let us know what you think. Get in touch. But until tomorrow, stay safe out there.